Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is that time of the week. I need a new theme song, I think, for this segment. It's Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. And, you know, we assemble the power panel, and we take your questions, and then we do our very best to answer them. already have a question in on the text line, and I'm looking for yours next. So text your question over, 877-933-2484. We've got... Uh, a, a great lineup of uh, men of God who want to take your question and do their very best to answer it. Maybe you've got a question you've been grappling with for a week or a year or 10 years. We would love to uh, take a crack at it. Again, the number is 877-933-2484. My power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn, and uh, 007, Justin Jepson. Hello, gentlemen. Good to be with you, Hi, Bill. Bill. As always. Hey, Bill. Night. Yeah, thank you. All right, question already in on the text line. Can you have the guys talk about submissiveness to God? I kind of struggle with that, and I thought I heard one of you quote something from C.S. Lewis regarding this issue. So can you guys talk about submissiveness to God? When you hear that, what do you think? I think biblically, it is not the way we would always understand it in our culture. You know, our culture talks about submissiveness as something really bad, or that a woman is submissive to a man, and we get attacked in Christianity for claiming that. What it really comes down to is this. Submissiveness to the Lord means you're making Jesus the priority of your life and your thinking, because my thinking has a tendency to go astray quite often. When I'm submissive to Jesus, I go back to his word, I employ other Christians, I think with them, I pray with them. And it helps me to understand it. And part of it is this. I've got to humble myself in the process. Mm -hmm. And that's not easy to do because I want to be right. And the Lord says, no, it doesn't work that way. You're in a community. You need to depend on one another. And in the marriage, when it talks about that between husbands and wives, and I just preached on this in 1 Peter, you know, the the wife, uh, Peter uses the term submissive, but it's not in a negative sense. It is in a sense of listening to what he has to say and following. And for the man, which most people miss— is he talks about how he's to treat the wife. And I told the congregation, your wife is the Mona Lisa, and you've got to treat her that way, the most rare, you know, painting on the earth. And what would happen in marriage if people did that? It'd be a different world. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Tom Parrish. Yeah, Jeff, I remember, I remember a guy talking about a book that he had read a long time ago. I think the book is 50, 60 years old, so it's an older book. But the title was God is My Co-Pilot. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing that and thinking, if God is your co-pilot, you need to switch seats <laughs> because God doesn't want to help you live your life. He is your life. He doesn't want to, he's not something you add into your life. Christ is your life, Paul says. And I think this whole idea of submitting your will to God's will is pictured probably best from the story of the garden when Jesus was in the garden yeah. right before he was to face the cross. 
he said, basically, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And I think that is probably one of the most clearest pictures of submission. He submitted himself even to death on the cross by saying, this is God's will. I may not, we may not completely understand when we say, God, do your will in my life. And we not, we might, that might scare us a little bit because we think, well, maybe there's something in our life that God wants us to do that we aren't willing to do. We don't want to do just like Jesus in the garden. But I think that's a very safe place to be with God when you say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Yeah. Justin? Yeah, Yeah, that's so good. You know, I I think one of the beautiful, um, maybe perhaps you could phrase it, ironies of this dynamic in Scripture as we see, of course, perfectly modeled in the life of Christ, is that it's, it's in submission that we actually truly find life and freedom. You know, that whole idea of take up your cross uh, daily and follow me means that we live a, a continual life of submission unto Christ. But in that, in our, in, in our giving up of our will for his will, for our way, for his way, for his, our priorities, for his priorities, it's in that that we actually truly find what um, Scripture calls abundant life that we receive from, uh, we receive from good, uh, Jesus the Good Shepherd as we submit to him as the sheep, to use the that beautiful metaphor, um, you know, and I love the, you know, what's the old, uh, the old rugged cross bids me to come and die and mm-hmm. find that I may truly live. And I think it's, I think that's, that's the idea, but it seems so counter- counterintuitive from the perspective of the culture in the world today, but it's actually in submission that we find freedom in life and wholeness and satisfaction. And I think it's important as both pastors, Bible teachers, professors, others, that we teach our youth and especially young, young people how to apply that submissiveness to daily life. When I was teaching confirmation a couple of years ago, I had five young women, 13 and 14 years old. And with the parents' permission, I was able to talk to those girls about how do you put Jesus above that boyfriend you're now dating or you will be dating when you're 16 or whatever it is, and you're out on a date and he started to get hot and heavy. How can you manage not feeling you're not worthy or rejected if he gets mad at you because you won't go any further, but that you will submit yourself to Jesus and say, I am not going to make that step until I'm ready to be married and honor Jesus in the process. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, not too many people think like that at 14 years old, but I want to mm-hmm. know why aren't we helping youth think this way at 14 mm-hmm. years old? Hmm. Yeah. You know, as, as important as John, as important as John three sixteen is to salvation, Right for God so loved the world, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Galatians two twenty uh, is really, I think, one of the key passages to understand. Sure. Now that we're a Christian, how then shall we live? Mm-hmm. And Galatians mm-hmm. two twenty says, "I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me." Uh, Paul goes on in Galatians later in chapter five to say, "Those who belong to Christ have cl- crucified the flesh." with his passions and desires. If, if, if we as human beings in our flesh were just to go do whatever we wanted whenever we wanted to do it, I mean, our lives would be a train wreck. Uh, but we want to crucify those human desires, that, that, that innate flesh that Paul calls the flesh. And we crucify that and in the end say, let God's will be done in our lives. So you're living that crucified life, I think is the key 
to living that abundant life that 007 was just talking about. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Nicely well, done. Nicely one done. Thing, Bill. Yes, one go ahead. Thing, Bill. Well, I was just going to say, on, on one hand, I, I think a verse that often maybe gets you know skipped over when people think about submission. They go to Ephesians 5 and talk about wives submitting to husbands, and that's you know, definitely part of the a huge part of the discussion. But right before that, in verse twenty one, Ephesians five, it says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yes, and I think that's so key that we actually we actually submit to one another. I mean, the same way that the three of us are submitting to you, Bill, as the show host. If we all tried to host, you know, it'd be a disaster, probably. Yeah, and, and I'm uh, submitting to Rosie, so it all <laughs> it all works out. Well, there's this chain. Exactly. It's good to know where the power comes yeah, from. Right. Exactly. Yeah. One button and I'm I'm gone. We're all gone at that point. We're all gone. <laughs> yeah. All right. Here's another great question. When Jesus forgave sins while he was here on earth, for example, the man who was lowered through the roof, how was he able to do that before he died and rose again, but also without the sacrifices like in the Old Testament? How did that work and not compromise God's justice? I mean, the forgiveness of sins was being done by a sacrifice, right? Yeah. And now Jesus is saying, I forgive sins, but there's no death and resurrection yet. How's that work? Well, I have the perfect answer, but I'll let 007 and Jeff go first. (laughs) 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 Well, uh, my my imperfect response then, according to what Tom's going to share next after he'll back clean up here. I mean, on one hand, the simple answer is that he's God. And uh, of course, God's not going to thwart his character and his justice. I mean, I mean, that, that, that's the expression of uh, those that were in the house teaching when Jesus said to the paralytic, you know, your sins are forgiven. And they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Um, but I think, you know, and there's a sense in which God being in time and yet outside of time is, is able to, know, knowing what he's going to do and the price and the sacrifice he will pay for sin, is still able in his divine authority as one who's also outside of time pronounce sins to be forgiven. I I like that. I mean, Jesus was God. So all the powers that God has is attributed to Jesus. So um, Jesus never stopped being God, even though he became a a person. And so I love the picture in in Mark. I I have it up. He says, get up. And what, which is easier to say to, to get up and take your mat or your sins are forgiven. But so that you recognize that I am God and have the power to forgive sins. I will tell the man to get up and walk, and then he forgives him of his sins. So I think God always had the power to forgive sins. Forgiveness of sins is always through faith. In the Old Testament, it's just that that forgiveness didn't result in the new life, the new creation, the born-again state. Remember, no one in the Old Testament was born again like they were in the New Testament. But salvation came the same way in the Old Testament as it does in the New Testament after the cross, and that is by faith. And clearly the guy who was being lowered down and whose sins were forgiven had enough faith in Christ, believing that he could heal him, and so Jesus could forgive him of his sins. Lovely. Thank you, Jeff Verdorn. And we're going to take a little break. When we come back, lots more guide talk. Uh, Let me know what your questions are. I have some great ones coming in. I can't wait to get them asked on the air. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Rosie, can I get some banjo? 
We want to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We're creating encouraging posts every day to help you focus on the important things as you spend time on social media. From graphics that feature Bible verses and quotes from our hosts and show guests, to articles about topics you are interested in, to videos from our hosts. Search Faith Radio on social media sites to connect with us today. Welcome to the show. It's Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. I love this hour of the week. We gather uh, like-minded, godly men, and we try to answer the questions as best we can. Let, let's revisit a question because, you know, remember how Tom Paris said, I, I think I've got a great answer, but I'll let 007 go first. You remember that, oh, He said Justin? perfect answer. He yeah, said the perfect, perfect answer. answer. I believe so. Yeah. So I think it's time to uh, pull the curtain aside and let him give the perfect answer. Put, put me on the spot. It's good. I deserve that. Well, and it was about when Jesus forgave sins while he was here on earth, for example, the man, like, for example, who was lowered through the roof, how was he able to do that before he died and rose again? but also without sacrifices like in the Old Testament. And now Tom Parrish, the perfect answer. When you think about it, remember what Philip said to him. He said, you know, Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough. That was before the resurrection, the crucifixion. And Jesus said, Philip, have been with you so long you don't know me? Those that have seen me have seen the Father. I think what we do is, you know, I'm a strong believer in what Jesus did in the crucifixion and resurrection, all those events. He sacrificed himself. But the issue of the Bible— is the person of Jesus. Who is this guy? And because he is both God and man, all power lies with him at all times. He simply was willing to give up specific powers except what he saw the Father doing. And that power to forgive was a power that he had regardless of what went on because that's why he came into this world, to bring us the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and defeat the devil. So in Jesus, we have that complete fulfillment <clears throat> of everything in the Old Testament, everything in the New Testament, in the person of Jesus, and that's where forgiveness is today. Forgiveness is not in saying the right words. It is not in just praying the right prayer, although I pray with a lot of people. It is in the person of Jesus. You get that right. You've got everything right. You know, I was just looking at verse 5 of this story in Mark chapter 2, and it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And I, I just think to Abraham and that line about Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So it's the same faith. They were just looking forward to the cross. We look backwards to right. the cross from from a time standpoint. Same faith, same salvation. Now we receive a different uh, 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 new creation. We get the, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we become one with Christ, something that didn't happen in the old, but it's still faith. May I add one more thought to this, along with what you, you just said, Jeff? In verse 5, when it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I remember a Greek scholar that I knew who made a very interesting point. He said, it is unfortunate that it isn't written in the New Testament the way we'd like it, but he said the implication always in the New Testament when Jesus talks about faith, you have to add the words, in me. So in other words, what he's saying here, and when Jesus saw their faith in him, not faith that he could heal, but faith in him, the person. Then he said, sons, your sins are forgiven. And I think that's the point of the New Testament, because without Jesus, there is no forgiveness. It is in his person that we get that forgiveness as we come and confess to him. So that's where the power lies. And he said, if you begin to do that with the word faith when it's used, 
throughout the scriptures, it gives you a whole new light. And I've been doing that for years, and it does. Because it is not simply how much... I always hear people say, oh, Bill, I wish I just had more faith. That's not the point. It's not the amount of faith. That's why Jesus compared it to a mustard seed. Not the amount. Mm -hmm. It's where you put that faith. And if you put that faith in Jesus, you're going to be just fine. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Tom, because I think it's it's not faith itself. It's the object of our faith or the person of our Mm -hmm. faith, you know, and, and a lot of people can believe very passionately and very sincerely about something, but if it's not in the right thing or not what's true, um, you know, it's it's not going to amount to much. You know, I can I can believe really passionately, sincerely that if I hold on to this big anchor and jump in the water, that it's going to save me. But <laughs> I'm going to find out really fast that's not the case, right? right. And so I, I think that's that's a really good point to draw out. And the, and the fact that even just the fact that he said he saw their faith also shows that true faith is something that we act upon, isn't just something that, you know, dwells at the level of, you know, giving it an intellectual assent or just a, a mental agreement to something. It's something mm. that we actually act upon. I really wish I could have been there. I think there are probably things that were said that we don't get in the scriptures, like the people saying, you can do it, Jesus, you can do it. And I think that, <laughs> that is a lot of where our faith needs to be. Yeah. You know, I remember hearing a, a guy talk on Peter getting up out of the boat and walking on water. And if you recall, he begins to sink. And and this guy was trying to say that Peter lost, didn't have enough faith in himself. He didn't have enough faith that he could do this. And it's like, really? Really? No, that's not the object of his faith. That's, that's not where his eyes turn from. His eyes turn from what should have been the object of his faith and trust, and that is in the person of Jesus. If you recall, when they were in the boat, and he says to them, and they think they're all going to die and the storm and the wind and coming up and Jesus is asleep and they wake him up and they all think they're going to die. And remember what he says. He says, you have little faith. And he calms the wind and he calms the waves. And why does he say you have little faith? It's because they didn't understand that Jesus as God was the maker of the wind and the waves. That's what they didn't understand. Mm, good point. Good point. All right, here's another question that just came in. Do you guys think that the word heart and the word soul may be synonymous when used in both the Old and the New Testament? Do you guys think heart and soul are the same when referred to in the Bible? I'm going to start with 007, Justin Jepson. Well, I mean, I think there's parallel or overlapping meanings to that, but I mean, they are, they are two different words in Hebrew and two different words in Greek in terms of the Old Testament. And so, I mean, I think when someone, when the Bible speaks about heart, it's it's talking about the seatbed of your, truly of like, of your, uh, your will, your, your affections, um, kind of what you give your allegiance to, where uh, the soul, um, and I'm curious to see what the other guys can talk about, you know, reference to this, but is, is is speaking to the reality that we do have an immaterial part of our being. And so um, we are spiritual creatures as, as, as well as physical creatures. And so, um, but I think when it talks about the, you know, for instance, when, you know, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, and then Jesus quoting that in Matthew 22 and talking about the greatest commandment, um, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, mm-hmm. I think he's he's referring to essentially our whole being, but he's talking about the different parts of our being, not as these, you know, 
separate categories that don't touch each other. They're all, they all overlap. We're holistic beings. And so I think it's different ways to uh, kind of splice out or talk about or itemize out, so to speak, the different aspects of, of who we are, of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. Good point. Luke ten twenty seven says exactly what you just said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. These are the words of Jesus. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus separated the four. Now, they're all combined. He said you got to put them all together. But each one has a distinct role that it plays in our human lives. And I think for most people, you know, people talk about uh, the heart being the decision-making area or they've lost heart over this or that or whatever else. But it's really the soul that gives us our identity. It's really who we are deep inside. And I find among young people, especially today, most of them almost are devoid of understanding the soul. They don't see how they are individually made and unique and cre- you know, created by the Lord, and therefore they don't understand that. The heart I've always understood is that place where now who you are individually, your soul, you, you're a distinct person. Your heart is kind of biblically your decision-making area. Now we know it, there's a heart that pumps blood. That's not what we're talking about. But the heart is where you make decisions out of that. And that's what helps shape your soul by the decisions you make. So Jesus separated the four, and I think they have a distinct point in each one. Mm. And then another question is, do you believe we get a new heart at the same time we get a new born again? When we get born again, do we get a new heart at the same time? Yes. Well, Scripture actually says two different things about the heart at the moment of being born again. It, it, for, for Israel, in the Old Testament, he says, I'll take out your heart of stone give you a heart of flesh. So there's kind of this idea of a new heart, a new identity. Uh, but also in the New Testament, he says that you, it's the circumcision of the heart, uh, that somehow it's been changed in some way. Um, so yeah, I, I, I take up, I think scripture describes three parts of man, your body, which is your physical body, your, your spirit, or pneuma in the Greek, which is, I think, the part that is joined with God. And then this immaterial part that, that you guys have been talking about called the suke. Now, I know we, we can't see it. It's hard to define it. When I hear the words, I love you with all of my heart, or I think with my, my brain or my mind, or you know, my gut tells me, to me, all those different descriptions of this immaterial part of you called the soul I actually think they're all speaking of this soul, the area of the the mind, the will, the emotion, memories. This is where you make decisions and so on. So I actually think when God says, when Jesus says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, I think it's it's a repetitive kind of uh, triloquy that's saying the exact same things. Love God with all of your soul. We just express it in different ways because we're talking about an immaterial part. Where does your soul dwell within your physical body. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how that works, but, mm-hmm. uh, so I think it's loving him with all of your will, with all of your soul, with all of your heart, with all of your gut, with all of your everything. All right. We're gonna take a little break. When we come back. Lots more guide talks and your questions over 877-933-2484. My power panel today is 007, Justin Jepson and pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. We'll be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. This is Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk, and we've got a power panel. That will take your questions and do the very best to answer them. 877-933-2484. The text line is open for you. Here's a question. Is there any significance between Moses and then Joshua having to raise a staff in order to win the wars they were fighting? Tom Parrish, go ahead. Take a shot. Back in that era, when you would go before a king or you would go before an authority or you would be conquered... Virtually everybody had staffs. It was part of their walking tools. It was part of their protection. They had swords. They had staffs. When you would then kneel in submission to that authority, you would not only kneel. Some would throw down their staffs, but the vast majority would raise their staffs in honor of the one that had conquered them. I think Moses Mm -hmm. and Joshua are pointing out, we are not the victors here. We are not the power. When we raise our staff, we're saying it is Yahweh himself that does this, not us, and when you trust in Yahweh, you'll see his power outflow. Mm-hmm. I think another interesting tidbit, too, that I was uh, recalling here is that, you know, both of those scenarios were in the context of battle and yep. that there were actual, you know, battle signals in terms of ways in which the commander of an army, so to speak, would communicate to the troops. Um, and so that, that could have been part of what they were doing. But there's also significance, too, of, even in the ancient Near East of, and there's even like, um, there's other, other writings that depict like other rulers and kings, like pharaohs of Egypt, for example, that would have their hands raised um, or a staff raised in order to, to relay some type of divine guidance or protection. And so I think there's also this sense in the case of Moses and Joshua, you know, what they're doing is they're, they're essentially calling upon the Lord um, and then relaying that divine guidance and protection uh, over over the troops uh, and towards the battle. Because clearly there was the significance there while Moses in Exodus 17 had Aaron and Hur that had to hold up his hands because it said whenever his hands were raised, Joshua would advance in the battle. Whenever his hands were down, that the enemy would advance. And so there was clearly some point of connection there. Well said. I have nothing to add. I've, I'm still trying to figure out why God had Joshua walk around this seven times, so yeah. uh, nothing to add to that. All right, Jeff, I think you might be up next, though, for this question. My church denomination adheres to a-millennialism. A-millennialism. I have such a hard time with this position. Can you briefly explain why this position has credence? Well, credence, I I actually don't think it, it does have credence. Let's define amillennialism. Amillennial is no millennial. It, it basically teaches that there is no future millennial kingdom on earth that is yet to come. I think the Bible does describe a future millennial kingdom on earth that when Jesus returns at his second coming, he establishes to rule and reign for a thousand years. So in actually when he teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I believe that there is a future kingdom on earth when Jesus will reign on earth from Jerusalem, from sea to sea, 
Um, and, and so when I look at the descriptions, for example, in the Old Testament of this millennial kingdom, there'll be peace on earth. Men will beat their weapons into plowshares. Uh, the, the wolf will lie down the, with the lamb and the lion will eat straw like the oxen. None of these things are happening today. So I, while we as believers are participants of the kingdom, and we are supposed to advance the kingdom by preaching the gospel here on earth and doing what is right and what is righteous, I believe there is a future literal kingdom that the Bible describes that is coming to earth, and that will be for a thousand years after Jesus returns. Thank you, Jeff Verdorn. Anybody else want to jump in? It's a tough topic. Christianity's kind of divided all over the place on this. Um, whether you're premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, whatever it may be. One of the things that I've always struggled with, and I'm a strong teacher and believer in the second coming, um, one of the things I've always struggled with is that there is virtually no biblical or, or historical literature talking about premillennialism, postmillennialism, or amillennialism before 1830. And I'm wondering, why did the Lord wait that long to reveal this, when for virtually 1,800 years after Jesus rose from the dead, Christians never talked about it this way? They talked about the second coming. But I know of no direct teaching on any of these until after 1830, um, and I'm not clear. Jeff, you know more about it than I do. Maybe you have some insights I don't. Well, there— Yes, a little bit. Um, you got to remember, one of the major forces in Christian history during a, a, over a thousand years was the Catholic Church. So a lot of the futurist views, uh, including the view of the of a rapture, of a pre-tribulational rapture, the second coming, kind of a, a traditional dispensational view, were repressed, uh, were uh, 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 you know destroyed, hidden, repressed. The pre-trib research center actually has clear. Uh, futurist kind of uh, kingdom teaching from every century from the third century on that is actually kind of cool to read where where teachers have taught that but you're you're absolutely right god has given us a lot of information about the end times but there are so many different views of the end times within the church and it's one of those issues that salvation is not based on your view of the end times right of course Um, it it is of course Mm -hmm. not it's based on faith so there's lots of different yeah. views. It is complicated. It is a puzzle that needs to be put together with lots of pieces. Jeff, yeah. the listeners are probably going to ask this because I'm going to ask this. That resource you're talking about that has those historical documents, if you could help us know where that is or I don't know how you would do it at this point unless you have it in front of you, I would love to read those because I've read a lot of history. I'm a historian. I have not read those, and so I'm showing my ignorance. I'd like to. One, one quick one. Yeah, there's a guy by the name of Pseudo Ephraim who wrote in 380 A.D., uh, and I'm the research source that I mentioned was the Pre-Trib Research Center. They have a website. I don't have it at okay. my fingertips here. But he wrote, for example, on the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation to come, and he clearly taught that. Uh, so in the fourth century, um, and, mm-hmm. and the Pre-Trib Research Center and some of the guys there say that, and I, and I haven't looked at all of them, but they have clear pre-tribulational teaching uh, from every century, and but it was hmm. repressed. That is, you had there is a valid point that there is has been a resurgence of kind of this traditional dispensational view uh, from say the late seventeen early eighteen hundreds on. Thank you. That's good to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, the only thing I have to <laughs> only thing I have to add to this conversation, I have this. It's kind of more of a pastor dad joke, but a mentor of mine says that, that he's a he's a pan millennialist, uh, which means it's all going to pan out in the end. So, um, I, I like that. Yeah. Well, and, and to a degree, I know it sounds you know not as a cop out. I think it's really important to to know the historical um, you know theological teachings on this, um, but. I think when when it comes to the end times and Revelation in particular, I, I'm always comforted and encouraged by, you know, the fact the opening line of the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And apocalyptic literature as a genre was actually written for the purpose of encouragement. And so where it's promoted so much confusion and unfortunately um, some discord and disunity, uh, even within the context of, of faith communities and churches, um, the book of Revelation was meant to really encourage us and to recognize that that in the end, it's going to pan out. In the end, Jesus comes back, uh, he wins, and we're on his team. And so, I, I mean, I Amen. think it's important to, to keep that overarching perspective when we go down into the weeds and t- try to discuss and discern um, all the different pieces. And to remember, um, there's a uh, now I'm forgetting the title of the book, but it's it's called decode. I think it's called decoding revelation. Um, but it's a super short book, but it really goes verse by verse, kind of or section by section of revelation that talks about how the original audience understood it. So I think we so so often try to fit revelation within our modern day, you know, culture, and we unfortunately read our modern day world perceptions and presuppositions into the text. And you got to remember that this was first written to an original audience, and it's really eye-opening to consider what those original meetings are so that we can properly apply it to our lives today. See, I want to know where you two guys were when I served a church that was charismatic Lutheran, believe it or not, highly charismatic, <laughs> and I had it almost equally divided between premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial in the congregation. And so any Bible study on the end times was always fascinating, and I tried to be out of town, but you know, you should have been there with me. <laughs> mm. And, and you know, and that's why I think so many churches avoid this topic. And mm-hmm. it's amazing. There, there's about 100, you know, individual prophecies for Jesus' first coming. There are several hundred prophecies for his second coming and this mm-hmm. coming kingdom. Um, some have estimated that about a third of the Bible is prophetic for events that are still yet to take place. And so mm-hmm. if you're just mm-hmm. going to ignore the potential of, you know, biblical prophecy and trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together, you're ignoring large swaths of Scripture. And I'll just say mm-hmm. one last thing. that you're in absolutely right. Revelation, in chapter 1, it says, Blessed is he who reads the words of the books and heeds the words that are written in it. God specifically promises a blessing to those who truly want to take the time and effort to understand God's plan for the end of the age. Mm-hmm. Good word. Yeah. Well, on a personal note, sorry to keep going on this, it, and only because it's personal, I actually came to faith in Christ learning about the second coming of Christ. Wow. That's neat. So, I mean, that's, for me, it's, so it's always been an area of interest, but it's always been deeply personal to me, because it was that, once I realized that, I realized, <laughs> I realized Jesus had come, <laughs> but I didn't know that he was coming back again, and that, for me, that changed everything. Of course. Jeff, I may need to come to you, though, for a time of confession, because in that charismatic church, <laughs> the way I solved the problem after going through this for years over there, I stood in the pulpit one Sunday and I said, 
I know your different positions here, but here's the bottom line. At the age of this congregation, within 20 years, you're all going to meet Jesus again, and the second coming will occur, as far as you understand it, in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> One way or another, over. that's exactly right. Uh, yeah, a lot of people laughed, and some left the church. So, <laughs> I, I like Justin's, uh, Justin's line. I use it often. I'm actually teaching my semester class on the end times right now. And I always begin in the first lesson with this idea that it is a study of our hope. It is a study sure. of our inheritance. And I say mm-hmm. often, I've read the back of the book, we win. Mm. Amen. I like that. All right, I'm going to take a break, and I have time for your question. So send it over. The text line is open, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back with lots more guy Talk. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. I am with my guys for Guide Talk, and they always have an interesting perspective. Tom, you just said during the break that that was the kind of discussion that you don't hear very often in churches. You know, I have been blessed as a Lutheran pastor because I've interacted with the Pentecostals, Assembly of God. I mean, right down the line. I've been good friends with many. Rarely have I been able to have the discussion we just had for three, four minutes about postmillennial, amillennial, premillennial and do it among friends to where we're all searching for the same answers, but we're not arguing against one another and kind of kicking us out of the kingdom. But I've run into too much of that, so I'm so thankful for what Guy Talk does. And and I would just tell the listener, Bill is not paying me to say this, no, but true. this is one of the most unique programs that I have ever seen in my entire life. And I would say, tell your friends, have them tune in. If they want to know more about the Word of God, this is the program, not because I'm here, but it's the unique cadre of people that are part of this. Yeah. And if you want to start your own Guy Talk franchise on your radio station, you let me know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Here's a passage I've been looking at lately. This is Colossians chapter two. It says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, here's the verse I want to talk about. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Yep. That no one may delude you. Now, when we talk about being a good Berean, uh, I, I just want to say... The Bereans didn't have their own Bibles at home. They didn't race home and open up their Bible, right? They gathered in community and and talked about what they heard. Does that sound, does that sound correct? It does. Mm-hmm. So were the members of the Bereans, and just to make this a sports analogy because you're guys, uh, were they all Vikings fans or did they have a, a Packer fan in there? And the Packer fan was like making noise and going, oh, I don't agree with you guys. 
And were the Bereans all like-minded? Were there dissenting opinions? Because if you hear in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude delude you with a plausible argument. Mm -hmm. Does one of the Packer fans have a plausible argument? And the Vikings fans are going, I've got to think about this. Good Hmm. point. Anybody jump in? Yeah, well, I mean, on one hand, so many of Paul's letters were, you know, writing to churches that he himself had planted and moved on from, established leadership, um, but he's addressing false teaching, you know, and we see this all over the place, especially in Corinthians and Galatians. And so I think the contrast here of talking about Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments— you know, a plausible argument, I think, is simply something that sounds right and, and maybe sounds right, feels good. But when you when you scratch beneath the surface and actually see what's the substance of it, it, it comes up hollow, comes up empty. You know, that's what he talks about in verse eight, philosophy and empty deceit, because deceit ultimately it's it's empty. It's a it's a lie packaged as a truth and then it's easier to swallow and we can tend to believe it. And so I think that what he's encouraging is, you know, anything that is. Um, not consistent with who Jesus is, his life, his ministry, and essentially Paul is saying as an apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit, by the apostolic teaching, um, don't don't believe that. Even though if it sounds, even though it sounds really good, um, don't don't believe it because the true treasure of wisdom and knowledge is actually hidden. It's in. It's in the substance of that is found in Christ. I think Martin Luther said it best. He said, "Wherever the Lord Jesus builds a cathedral." Satan will come along and build a chapel. And that's what we have here, because this was written within 30 years of Jesus rising from the dead, maybe a little less than that. They had heard the straight message of Jesus, who he was, and what happened. But now you have a a group of people coming along that traditionally we've called the Gnostics. These are people that didn't walk with Jesus. They didn't know Jesus. They heard the stories, but they said, "Uh uh-huh, sure, yeah. Well, we believe he spiritually rose from the dead, and he has a great philosophy, but bodily, come on now, what are you talking about? And so this was a debate for the almost three centuries in Christianity. The problem is it's come back. It is now very prominent in theological circles, in, in even slipping into Christian teaching. And what we do is we keep changing what Jesus said or what we see in the Word of God to match our culture. That's what they were doing, and that's what uh, you have here, Paul, you know, really pushing against don't let that happen. Stay with the real message as you heard it from those that were actually with him. I like the way, Tom, you described it. That anywhere the, the truth is taught, there's a lie right there Always. Uh, to, try to, to try to distract people from, from the truth. And so I think Paul is just simply saying, look, there's going to be false teachers out there. And it, if you look at the New Testament, you know, uh, uh, the, the false beliefs of the Corinthians, the false beliefs of the Galatians, Paul is correcting these false teachings. In fact, in Acts 20, it says, Paul says, I fear that once I leave, false teachers will slip in amongst you like savage wolves and teach you things that not ought to be taught. Um, Paul is, is adamant in, in, in Timothy and in, and in Titus, uh, warning about the false teachers that are going to come and teach you things that your itchy ears want to hear. And so uh, the church has been, from its very beginning, has been inundated uh, with false teaching. So I think Paul often uh, exhorts his listeners to, to stick with the truth of, 
of God's truth. Uh, not Don't be distracted by these fine-sounding arguments that your itching ears want to hear, but stick to the Word of God. Uh, Bill, you were talking about it earlier about the Bereans. The Bereans searched the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true, and that's exactly what we should do as well. Yeah, I was just curious yeah. if the Bereans were like-minded, though, or was there someone with a very different perspective or a group of the Bereans that were, were arguing against the other Bereans. Hmm. Probably. There were pro- everything you're saying is probably reality. <laughs> yeah, 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 probably right. And it's working in there because this is how the devil works. The devil always wants to undermine the real message to get us on to a false message because there's no power in the false message, and that's what he likes to do. And I've seen this over and over and over. One of the concerns I've had, uh, and I mean, I'm a seminary graduate, and I did all the schooling and all that went with that, and, and I, up to a point, I believe in that. But I think what we've done is we have, at least in the West, set up a system of calling pastors or putting pastors in churches that were not raised in that church. And therefore, they're coming from the outside with their own ideas, whether they're theological accurate or inaccurate, and bringing them into the body. Where if you, they grew up in that church and they were set aside by the leadership of that church to eventually be the pastor, uh, that would be a whole different story. And I think in the Berean church, that's why everywhere Paul went, what did it say? He appointed elders, people that from the very beginning knew of this Jesus or knew about him, and then they would pass that on. So uh, I'm not putting down seminaries, but I see the problems that it creates when you're bringing somebody in that doesn't know this body, hasn't been raised in it, and they're not even talking the same language sometimes. Hmm. Thank you, Tom Parrish. All right, I'll move on. I saw this uh, news item the other day in a European uh, newspaper, and it was talking about Anthony Bourdain. He was a chef, a charismatic, good-looking guy. He seemed to have the whole world at his feet. And uh, he was having a conversation, texting with his ex-wife, and he said, I hate my fans. I hate being famous. I hate my job. I am lonely and living in constant uncertainty. And two hours later, he killed himself. And that's wow. how his life ended. Now, I don't know if there were um, uh, chemical depression going on with him. and I, I don't want to sit and make any kind of evaluation as to what he was in. But the description of saying, I'm lonely and living in constant uncertainty is something that we hear all the time from people who are outside of God's family. Because as I, I think it was, was it Pascal that said, we're all have born with that vacuum-shaped uh, space in our heart that can only be filled by God. And if God is not in that space, we'll do anything else to fill it. Money, dr- yeah, drugs, that, sex, whatever. That exact quote from Blaise yeah. Pascal is that there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. And I think there are, there are countless examples throughout history of people who have pursued their own goals and their mm-hmm. own purposes mm-hmm. and their own dreams only to achieve them and find that the satisfaction, the true satisfaction, the true happiness, the true peace that they were looking for just still eluded them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that true peace can only be found once you find the one who made you, 
who gave mm-hmm. you those desires in the first place um, and, mm-hmm. and, and gives you, made your very being. Yeah, Justin. And when you find mm-hmm. him, then only, then his true peace will come upon you. Justin, we just have a minute left, so I'm going to ask you to give a word for people who are lonely and and living in constant uncertainty. Uh, Maybe someone's tuned in today and they thought, uh, I'm kind of uncertain and I'm living a little lonely. Would you make a remark about that? Yeah, well, and I think this is a a tragedy that's not only out, you know, with people in the world or the people that don't know the Lord, but it's also true with people in the church. And because I think the thing that we most long for is also the thing that we're afraid of, which is intimacy. And intimacy um, really lies at the intersection of being both fully known and fully loved. But we, we view those things as mutually exclusive, but they're meant to go hand in hand. And so in other words, people believe the lie. If I'm fully known, people know who I really am. They're not going to love me. And so we put up these facades and these masks. We, we front with one another. And so that the reason why we're so lonely is because people aren't loving you. They're loving the mask that you put on. But I would say for those that are um, struggling with this, and I've been there and have been there, um, you can drop all defenses, all masks, and recognize that there's a God who knows you, loves you, is pursuing you. He's known you before the foundation of the world, and you were created for a purpose of, of being known and, and knowing God and God's desires for that to be expressed in the confines of also of human relationship within the body of Christ, within your marriage, within your family. And so take a risk with one other person, not only express yourself in honesty before God, but allow yourself to be known by others. And then that loneliness will be eclipsed by, by true love and no, fully known and intimacy. I love that. Thank you so much, Justin Jepson. Tom Paris, Jeff Verdorn, thank you for being an awesome panel. Uh, that's all the time we have for Guide Talk. We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, Counselor Todd Mulliken will be joining me. We're going to talk about perfectionism. So if you are a perfectionist or maybe you live with one, you're not going to want to miss it. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.